Our scripture passage today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. These verses can be found on page 898 of those blue pew Bibles. You're also welcome to just listen, and I'll give you the page number after we read. John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. And wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, They came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you um, as your people. You know each of our hearts here, and you know uh, that some have come today wondering if you are a God who makes yourself known anymore. Father, some of us are convinced that you do make yourself known, and you make yourself known through your scripture and by your spirit. Um, Some of us have already experienced you to such an extent this afternoon that really we will simply relish in the fact that you have mercy on us as we have sung and that you are a God of forgiveness. Father, I praise you that you are a God of mercy and we do not come before you as women and men who claim to deserve things before you or before one another. Father, we confess that we are all too quick to compare ourselves to each other and to find ourselves so often in the positive category and others in the negative category. Father, I think about the Psalms that we're going to read this week that talk about the lack of justice 
among human beings. And Father, we are convicted of that even as we hear each other sing and pray and as we are aware of what is going on in each other's lives and in our own lives. And Father, we cry out to you, have mercy. Father, we join our voices with Samuel and we praise you that he has prayed on our behalf that you would have mercy on the Ukrainians and we pray also that you would have mercy on the churches of Ukraine and the churches of Russia. Father, we pray for these two nations at war that you would intercede. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters, fellow Christians in both Ukraine and Russia who are caught in the crossfire, one of public shame and the other of potential death. And Father, we pray that you would have mercy. We pray that you would intervene. Father, we remember our brothers and sisters uh, who had us pray from China that you would sanctify their suffering. And Father, we pray the same for our brothers and sisters, both in Kiev and in Russia, that you would sanctify their suffering. Father, we know that you change the hearts of leaders of nations. We have read about it in your scripture, and so we pray that you would change Putin's heart, that he would not be bent on war, but that you would bring peace. Father, we confess to you that when we pray this way, um, we feel very impotent because there is nothing that we can do but pray to you. But Father, we confess to you that all that demonstrates is the paucity of our faith with regard to prayer. And we praise you that you not only promise to hear our prayer, but to incorporate our prayer into your sovereign will. Father, we ask you that you would bring peace and healing. And now we pray for our own families. We pray for our own hearts. Father, there are hearts in this in this church and in this place, we need physical healing. Father, we need mental healing. We need healing from shame and from wounds inflicted upon us. And we need healing because we have inflicted those wounds and we are oppressors. Lord Jesus, we are the ones that need healing. And we praise you that you have said that the gospel is a salve that can be rubbed into our wounds and bring healing. Father, I pray that today you would do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Father, help us to grieve as those who grieve with hope, as those who grieve and whose grieving brings repentance that leads to faith and to life. Father, guard us from becoming those who grieve and whose grieving ends in complaint and hopelessness and death. We need you, and so we praise you that you have promised to show up. Father, I pray that you would pour your spirit out on us this afternoon and that you would fill us 
with an ability to contemplate the magnitude of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And that you would allow us to so feed on that reality that whether we are in high school, whether we are in elementary school, or whether we are going to work tomorrow, we would be enabled to go as those who bear the fragrance of Christ. Father, we pray that you would work. And it's in your name we pray all these things, Jesus. Amen. These verses are brief. Really, we'll be looking at these first nine. What you'll see is Mary's active devotion that, it was a, that is a result of what she has discovered in chapter 11. So if you don't have your Bible in front of you, you need to open it up. Again, the page is 898. And you need it there because you're going to find yourself glancing back to chapter 11 to make sense of what you read in chapter 12. But I want you to see that Mary's act of devotion here is a result of what she has discovered. And, and that in and of itself is a result of her contemplation. So we're going to talk about those things. Contemplating what has taken place, acts of devotion that result from what you discover. I think the same and the pattern is the same for us as well. Nathan and I were talking on Monday as we reviewed his sermon of the previous Sunday and, and this sense of which those verses at the end of chapter 11 leading into chapter 12 seem to stop the flow of the narrative in such a way that you just kind of hold on for a little bit and go, wait, what happened? Because there's no response of Martha and Mary and Lazarus that's, that's, that's spoken of in those verses immediately following Lazarus' raising from the dead. We have to wait until today. There was some period of time in which you, as the reader, have been sitting in this raising of Lazarus from the dead. There is a period of time in which the narrator expected us to sit in the reality of not knowing how Martha and Lazarus and Mary responded. And in some senses, there is this reality that it is in contemplation of what happens in the scriptures where we most discover what we need to discover that results in our own acts of devotion. This idea of contemplation is not new to me. It's just the first of these three things that I want you to think about. In the midst of loss, the reality of that loss changes daily. And just imagine for Mary and Martha, and even Lazarus, the, the deep grieving of loss, the hopelessness gone, then Lazarus restored, and the hope restored, and yet Jesus gone, and the reality of the word getting out that now Jesus is to be found, and when he's found to be arrested, and anyone ought to turn him in who knows where he is. A lot to contemplate. Contemplation is what we need more of. 
we have devices and even watches that ding on the hour, reminding us to be mindful. <laughs> we have gotten that bad about contemplation. We're afraid to give ourselves too much time in this service to contemplate, to sit in silence. Because if you're anything like folks in my house, you even watch TV with another device in your hand. <laughs> we are that distracted. But I'm telling you, this is something that we need to contemplate. And not just this, but in reality, all of what God does in the gospel is something that needs to be contemplated. We have been seeing how the Psalms lead us in worship. And how many times have we heard already, just this spring, to be still? To cease striving. Your alarm will go off in the morning. Be still. The question that we have to ask to understand this act of devotion that we see Mary do is what just happened? So that's the piece of contemplation. I want you to think now with me on this piece of devotion. This act of devotion that Mary does this act of devotion that addresses Jesus' unasked question of Mary, do you believe this? His unasked question to her. Jesus specifically asked Martha in chapter 11, Martha, do you believe what I'm telling you about me? But here in these verses... And in verse 3 particularly, we see Mary with this act of devotion that is costly, that is unhindered, and that is transformative. You get the picture, right? Jesus has left from the north. He's heading back south through Bethany into Jerusalem six days before the Passover, six days before his own death. Jesus comes into Bethany where Lazarus was raised from the dead and a great party is thrown in his honor. It's no surprise what they're honoring. <laughs> the raising of Lazarus from the dead, right? We see that Mary is serving at this party, that Lazarus is reclining with Jesus at table. And I don't know if that ever jumps out to you. It's a specific word that has to do with table fellowship. The picture is of these folks around a table, either on cushions or on sofas, as it were, laying on the table so that their feet are out behind them, right? And verse 3 is the explanation of Mary's act of devotion. Verse 3 simply says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. 
Mary's act of devotion. It's costly. You can read as well as I can the footnotes that explain that this is a year's salary's worth, this act of devotion. There are two options about the fragrance, right? There are two options about the perfume. Option one is that she didn't have it before and that she actually acquired it for this moment. And you could imagine that that would be a really nice gift to give to Jesus. There's an option two of where this perfume came, that she had it and she did not use it on her brother to anoint him. Why might that be but that she and Martha would need that ointment? A year's worth of ointment that would sustain them in the absence of their brother being all that they had, likely. As Mary contemplates this act of devotion in the raising of her brother from the dead, it seems to me that of those two options, we don't know, but the second one seems most likely, doesn't it? A willingness to give all that she has. This act of devotion that Jesus says in its references in both Matthew and in Mark that this woman's act would be preached whenever the gospel is proclaimed. For time immemorial. This act is not just costly, but it's unhindered. It's free of constraint. Do you see it? It's personally free of any constraint of pride or identity for Mary. She is humble in what she does. She risks rejection and being misunderstood personally as she anoints Jesus' feet as they are laid out and begins to wipe them with her hair that she has let down. Socially, this is unhindered, even though it would have been completely outrageous. She is a woman entering into this party, letting down of her hair the intimacy that is communicated in this act of devotion. Finally, it's transformative nature. We simply read that the house was filled with the smell of the perfume. But we know that it transformed everyone involved. Jesus was transformed in the nose of everybody who was there. They all smelled him. They smelled him. In Matthew and Mark, we are told that his head too was anointed. That this entire perfume was used on his, on his head and his clothes and his feet. Jesus was transformed in the noses of everyone else who would see him for the rest of the week. Have you ever been around a junior hire who puts on too much Perfume or cologne. You smell them for a long time. 
Have you ever experienced a loss? And one of the things you reach for is the smell. Jesus was transformed in the nose of everyone who would meet him that week. The week of his death. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry, he smelled like pure nard. I don't know what nard smells like. Apparently you want to smell like nard. Apparently it's good. At least in some amount. But he is covered in it. Jesus said in verse 4 that he would be glorified. He is revealed by this act. But Mary is also transformed. Guess who she smells like? (laughs) She smells like Jesus. (laughs) She has just wiped her hair with the ointment with which she has anointed his feet. She is going to smell like Jesus for a long time. Mary is identified as having been with Christ through this act of devotion. But that's not it. Because the house has also been transformed by this act of devotion. We're told that it's filled with a fragrance. That the environment all around them has been filled with this fragrance. In fact, some commentators would speak to this idea of the house where Jesus is dwelling with his people, now becoming like a temple in which he is glorified by the fragrance of that offering of praise of his people. That this picture of this act of devotion transforms Everyone around. I think that in many ways we have come to believe that it's our stances as Christians that are going to impact our society more than our devotion. Listen, I'm not suggesting that they ought to be in tension. They shouldn't be in tension at all. I'm simply suggesting that we as Christians have forgotten the impact of devotion and of our acts of devotion on our families and on our communities in the midst of an ever-increasing hostile environment, we naturally lean toward our stances to impact those around us rather than our devotion. But notice here what changes everyone involved is Mary's act of devotion. The only thing that Jesus adds to Mary's act of devotion is in response to Judas's complaint. Man, come on. Why has this been wasted? Why couldn't you just save it and sell it and give it to the poor? 
And Jesus responds and says, leave her alone so that she might keep it. Nobody knows what keep it means because the picture is that she spent it all. Is it the experience of having been anointed by this that Jesus says so that she might keep it? Is there a little perfume left? Nobody knows. But Jesus orients her worship in one other way so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. The only thing that Jesus does with this act of emotion is to orient it at the cross. I'm going to argue that in John, this is the last act of devotion, of, Christ, of Jewish devotion that we see in John. It's the last one. It's costly. It's unhindered. It's transformative. We hear the story of Mary and Martha, and we often think to ourselves, which am I more like? That's not the point of the story of Mary and Martha. It's, it's not the idea that we're supposed to get out of seeing Mary and Martha interface with Jesus differently. Jesus meets with both individually. This piece reminds us that we're supposed to ask the question, am I more like Judas or am I more like Mary? Do I ask the question most often in my life, how can I profit from Jesus? How can I profit from Jesus? Sounds crazy in our society that's so hostile toward Christianity these days. But there are ways in which as Christians you can profit from Jesus in a greedy way. Actual physical money, actual physical return. But this sends us all the way back to our study of Job and this theology of retribution that we think oftentimes the question is, how do I interact with Jesus so I can profit with Jesus that if I give God what he wants, he gives me what I want. The question that Judas asks is, how can I profit from Jesus? Safety, security, healing, freedom, peace. But the question that Mary asks is what can I give to Jesus as an act of devotion? I don't think that this is a question that you and I should walk away from quickly. I think it's a question that we should settle into. What can I give to Jesus as an act of devotion that is costly to me, that is unhindered in its giving and that is transformative, brings glory to God, changes us more into the image of Christ, and is for our communities an amazing picture of God's 
glory. Judas is driven by a sense of need, a fear of loss. Does that sound familiar to you? On Tuesday afternoon of this week, not only did it sound familiar to me, but it was me. What do we need in our lives to become less like Judas? What can I profit from Jesus? And more like Mary, what can I give to Jesus as an act of devotion? What do we need so that we might be changed? Well, we need to discover what Mary discovered, and this is the end of the sermon. What did Mary discover that led to this act of devotion? Can you contemplate it with me for a minute? Think about it. What did she discover? If you page back in chapter 11, you're going to see that the first thing that you hear from Mary and Martha is a hesitant hope that maybe Jesus could help them. They say in the very beginning, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. They don't say, will you come please heal him? They don't say, we want you to do X. There is a hesitant hope that Jesus would work. That hesitant hope is replaced by complete despair. It's replaced by despair because their brother dies. He's dead and Jesus is nowhere to be found. That hesitant hope moves to despair. And when Jesus comes, Mary's despair moves to isolation. How do we know? Martha ran to see Jesus, says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that what you ask of your father, he will give to you. But where is Mary? Mary stays at home in isolation. Only when Jesus calls to her and says, come to me, does Mary go and fall at the feet of Jesus in complete loss? I think Nathan and I are right to tell you that neither of these women were filled with doubt of Jesus' ability. I think that that's right. But listen, you cannot consider a human being going through the loss of their sibling whom they had hoped would be healed by Jesus and not think that they were completely disappointed and confused and wondering if you had the ability to keep this loss from coming into my life, why have you not done it? This deep sense of loss. And what words does Mary get? Do you remember what I preached two weeks ago? She gets no words from Jesus. The very next thing that we see of Mary is actually this act of devotion happening sometime later. Who knows how long the end of chapter 11 is when Jesus went away. What had Mary received from Jesus? 
Well, she received a firsthand view of Jesus' emotional response to death in the face of other human beings and his emotional response to death in the face of death. That's what the sermon was about two weeks ago. Mary had been, giving, had been given a gift. It wasn't just the gift of her brother, but it was the gift of the heart of the giver. Jesus' response to death's impact on her and those around her. Mary was indeed given the gift of Lazarus back, as was Martha. But what transformed Mary is the gift of the heart of the giver, Jesus. By now, you know that I believe that this picture in John is the same as the picture in Mark 14 and in the picture of Matthew 26. I believe that these Marys are the same. These anointers are the same. There's another anointing that takes place much earlier in the life of Jesus' ministry. Luke 8 records that anointing. And there's one commentator that asks us to consider the impact. What if that person was also this Mary of Bethany? It wouldn't be outrageous to believe that. St. Augustine believed it. Medieval Christianity, for the most part, believed that that one who anointed Jesus' feet in Luke 8, the sinful woman, who the Pharisee said, I can't believe you're willing to touch her, who comes to Jesus is the same. But this commentator says, just for sake, consider it for a minute. That in her shame of her sinfulness, she comes with reckless abandon and casts herself at the feet of Jesus with tears and also with ointment and touches him and anoints him. And then you know the story goes on from there. Jesus describes to the Pharisee, who loves more, those who are forgiven more or those who are forgiven little? And the Pharisee is forced to answer those who are forgiven much. And then Jesus turns to this woman and says, Simon, I came into this house and ever since I've been in, you didn't do anything for me. But she has not ceased her devotion to me. This commentator says, consider that it's the same Mary who then receives forgiveness and is told that her faith has saved her. And Jesus in his kindness says, you may go in peace, getting her out of an incredibly awkward situation, right? And now, this one, this Mary, enters into the story that's above. The story where this second anointing references the first, yet is a completely different anointing. One is that is controlled and empowered because she had done it before. Look, it might be the same Mary. I, I'm not persuaded that it is, actually. I don't think that it is. But it's not necessary that it be because the story from Luke 8 is supposed to help us understand we are those who have been forgiven much. <laughs> All of us. 
We don't look at each other and compare ourselves to each other and say, at least I haven't been forgiven as much as he's been forgiven. Have mercy. The whole picture of Luke 8 is to realize, Simon, if you just knew how much you have been forgiven of, Simon, you would have been led to this act of devotion. But see, it's one thing to be forgiven. It's a completely other thing to be forgiven because you are desired. Because you are wanted by the one who forgives you. This is the reality that needs to be contemplated by this story. This is what we have to ask as we live in loss, this side of the cross. Because you and I cannot say that we have not been given a gift. Do you live with loss in your life? I think you do. I do. But we have not only been given the gift of Jesus, but we have been given the gift of the heart of God in the gift of Jesus. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus says that in this example, God would be glorified, that he would be glorified, that the disciples might believe this is why it is dripping with God's love. This story is dripping with God's love. It is this idea of the idea of being willing to forgive but not willing to want someone anymore that crushed me this week. I found myself and an opportunity for reconciliation. I found myself in an opportunity for forgiveness. And what crushed me as I went into it was that I had no desire for future relationship. And what I experienced in the midst of it was a longing for more. And this story was on my mind. Mary was given a gift, but the gift that transformed her to this act of devotion was the gift of the heart of the giver that she would never have to question. And therefore, this act of devotion, costly, unhindered, transformative. Because God always gives abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Colossians 1.16 says something that this minister this week told me, I use all the time with people who don't believe in God. He says, it simply says this, that all things were created by him and for him. 
And he said the fact that all things were created for him is because he wanted it that way. That you and I are created for him. His love for us, his charity is one of friendship. And when we are forgiven, we are forgiven by the one who wants us. That's amazing. Mark and Matthew both say that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, this woman is to be spoken of. Why is it? Because Mary leads us in devotion. She leads us in this act of devotion. And so I'm going to ask you this question. As you contemplate between now and Easter what we are going to read for the next few chapters of John, what act of devotion are you moved to give after contemplating the gift of Jesus that has been given to you with the heart of the Father who gave it. That's what we're going to contemplate as we hold the bread and the wine and as we wait to take it together. Pray with me.